0: Well, we're gonna start into 2 Timothy tonight, as you guys are probably aware. We've gone through 1 Timothy and uh, Titus and keeping things in chronological order. Um, We're going to look at 2 Timothy. And this will be a little bit of an overview, um, but mostly we're gonna go through chapter one. We'll be looking at chapter one. I'll give you a little bit of background by way of overview. it's a pretty typical Pauline letter in the way that it opens. opens with um, a declaration of who the author is and who he is in Christ as an apostle. Uh, so the greeting, he names himself, he names the recipient, um, gives a greeting, and then a statement of thankfulness. Those four elements are found in just about every one of Paul's letters at the beginning. They're a little abbreviated in this letter, which actually... Um, indicates a little bit of um, the urgency with which he's writing. Um, and all three, um, just by way of background, all three, well, after the thankfulness, then he launches into his, the main points of his letter, which he also does in 2 Timothy. Again, he does this in a, a little bit more of a rapid pace. The greeting is shorter, in other words, in 2 Timothy than many of his other letters. Um, all three of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, were accepted as genuine Pauline letters from the early church, all the early church fathers, all the way up until the 1800s. And then some questions started coming up. Any, any guesses why in the 1800s they would have started questioning um, not, just the, not just the authenticity of Paul writing this letter, but the authenticity of the gospel, or the New Testament in general. Um, Any idea what was happening in the world in that time frame? It starts with an E, yeah, the Enlightenment, yeah. So the Enlightenment, the era of rational thinking, um, the age of reason, which here's a definition out of the the, uh, Dictionary Britannica. It's a European intellectual movement of the 17th and 18th centuries, so the 1600s and the 1700s, in which ideas concerning God, reason, nature, and humanity were synthesized into a worldview that gained wide assent in the West and that instigated revolutionary developments in art, philosophy, and politics. Central to Enlightenment, thought, were the use and celebration of reason, the power by which humans understand the universe and improve their own conditions. Now, the goals of rational humanity were considered to be knowledge, freedom, and happiness. Knowledge, freedom, and happiness. What else happened in close proximity to this time frame? 1807 is the exact uh, year that this Reconstructionist um, first happened. So about 25 years before that, a little more than that, almost 30 years, right, was the establishment of the United States, also established in a season of reason, established within the Enlightenment period. which fits in with the three goals, knowledge, uh, freedom, and happiness, right? Uh, written right into the, right into the uh, preamble. So the United States, the formation of this experiment that we continue to live in um, was very heavily influenced by the intellectuals coming out of that movement. That movement also spawned deism, which is the idea that God wound the world up and then set it free, and that he doesn't interact in it anymore, but that we're left to our own devices. Um, and that influenced a great many of the founding fathers of our country. Probably the best known example of that would be Thomas Jefferson. And you remember, he's, so he's like the first Jesus Seminar guy. You guys know what the Jesus Seminar is? No? Uh, The Jesus Seminar was a group of intellectuals about 20 years ago, more or less, that essentially decided on their own. They had a small committee, and they would use these balls, colored balls, marbles, to decipher, not to decipher, to vote whether Jesus actually said these things or not that were in the Bible. Well, Thomas Jefferson beat him to this a long time earlier. He, He cut all the things out of his Bible that were supernatural, Um, or had anything to do with things outside of reason or um, enlightened thinking. So um, it was a bit of an inside joke. And if you guys don't know what the Jesus seminar is, it just went, and that's okay. Uh, They were also very rationalist thinkers who basically said that nothing could happen outside of uh, the the laws of nature, right? Um, So again, this is a, a rather normal Pauline letter, but there's a very different mood here. Uh, it's written from a prison. That's not the first letter written from a prison, right? We know that several of the other the prison epistles were also written while he was incarcerated. But we read in Acts and elsewhere that when he was in prison that time, one of the times he was chained to a Roman guard, which means that he actually lived in that guard's house, which wasn't abnormal, in that time frame, in that era, they didn't incarcerate people for years at, well, years, but not lifetimes like we do. They, um, Well, they were much more brutal. If, if somebody was gonna be in jail that long, they killed them. I mean, it was just capital punishment, even for things that we would find offensive for somebody to die for. Uh, they, just, they, didn't, they didn't house people for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, they just did away with them. So usually, prison or incarceration was for short periods of time. They'd be chained to a guard, like Paul was, and they'd actually live in that guard in that person's home. Uh, and how they were treated, uh, you know, it varied. Some of them were paraded out as trophies at, at fancy dinner parties and whatnot. Um, others were. Paul was treated with a lot of respect. He was allowed to have visitors. His guard actually probably converted. Sound, sounds like, or at least he certainly heard the witness of Christ many times. Um, and then there was another time when he basically was under house arrest. You know, they didn't have an ankle bracelet on him, but he was he was under house arrest. He was told just to, presumably told to stay in his own home um, and, and had boundaries. Like maybe he couldn't leave the city perimeter or something, who knows. But uh, so had it pretty easy the first two times that he was under arrest. This time, not so much. Um, He's detained in a much darker times and circumstances. The the persecutions of the Christians at this point by Emperor Nero was in full, I mean, it was full on raging in Rome. Uh, A few years before Paul gets arrested, about half of Rome had burned, and chances are that Nero set the fire and caused it. But like any good politician, he created a big problem over here, and then he created a solution over here by blaming other people. He said, actually the Christians did this, we should persecute them. Uh, and then they did horrific things, and he in particularly did horrific things to Christians on a regular basis, including you've probably heard the, the terribly gross stories about using them as, as lanterns at night or torches at night. They would wrap them up in flammable materials and, and presumably have oil or something on them and use them to light his garden. Um, that, wasn't, that probably was the worst way that many of them died, but there was also a lot of crucifixions in that time frame, um, and just death in general to Christians as they persecuted them. So this is the time frame when Paul's arrested this time. We don't know exactly when or where he was arrested, but we do know just from the way he talks, and from this letter in particular, which is his last written letter, Paul did not have you don't see hope in this letter of release like you do at the end of Acts. Um, he expects to be released at the end of Acts when he's imprisoned. In this letter, you don't see that. In fact, you hear him calling Timothy, his, his spiritual son, to bring comfort and aid to him in the way of his cloak, in the way of bringing John Mark. Um, he's lonely, he's been abandoned. There's just a lot of things going on here. Um, So what happened between these two imprisonments? We really don't know between then and this one, which is probably in the Mamertine Prison, uh, where he's where he's being held this time. Um, we don't really know what happened in between, but we do know some of the desires that he had. We know that he had a desire to visit Philemon in Colossae. We read about that in Philemon, uh, in Romans 15. There's, uh, Paul hints at this great ambition he has to, to evangelize Spain. Now, we have no idea if he made it or not, um, but Clement of Rome seemed to think so. In a letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, he mentions Paul having come to the extreme limit of the West. Now, it's possible that he's talking about the further, the most Western portions of Italy, but more than likely, Paul made it either to Spain, Gaul, or some people think Britain. Um, and that makes sense of Especially of uh, Clement's statement in his uh, letter to the Corinthian church, um, we do know what we do know for sure, though, is that the, uh, that Paul was condemned to death, and then most likely he was beheaded, which would befit his status as a Roman citizen. They didn't subject Roman citizens to the same kinds of torturous deaths that they. Uh, submitted other people too, so more than likely Paul was taken two or three miles outside the city, and his head was cut off, quick and easy, quick and easy, as quick and easy as that kind of a death can be, at least. Um, but much easier than being a human torch or being crucified, or any number of other ways that they may have come up with to torture people. Uh, tradition also states, um, in fact, Eusebius, who's one of the early church fathers, quotes Dionysius of Corinth, he says that Paul and Peter were both martyred on the same occasion. Um, and then he adds that Paul's execution was by beheading, and Peter's, at his own request by crucifixion, upside down or head downward. Paul knows this is coming. Again, quite likely he's in the Mamertine prison, and don't think of this like modern tr- prisons. They, they, again, they didn't incarcerate people for extended periods of time. So Paul knew his days were numbered. People that ended up in the Mamertine prison, they were, that was basically was death row. And they knew that that's where they were headed. So Paul had no question that this was in his near future. Um, so this would have weighed heavily on his mind as he uh, penned what were to be his final written words to his beloved spiritual son, Timothy. This is Paul's most personal letter. It's, it's his most emotional letter. So imagine yourself for a few moments being in Paul's sandals. Uh, He's most certainly in chains. He's lonely, having been abandoned by most of his former companions. Only Luke, at the end of 2 Timothy, it says that only Luke is with him at this point. He's cold. We know that because he's requested his cloak, which he had left behind along with some parchments in Troas. So who would you write to if you find yourself in this kind of a situation, knowing that, that you're soon to be um, put to death? And what would you write about? probably be some pretty important things that you would write to a, someone that you cared a lot about. Probably your spouse if you're married, maybe a close family friend if you're not married, or a best friend. Well, the way that Paul answers those two questions reveals what was most important to him. He wrote to Timothy, and he primarily writes about the gospel. Uh, He knows his days are numbered, and he's concerned about the integrity of the gospel message. What's gonna happen to the gospel when I'm gone, he's thinking. Uh, He's trusting God at the same time, there's gotta be this angst within him, perhaps even feeling like a failure. It's like Paul has been incarcerated. Most of the people in Asia you read about, in fact, we'll read about a couple of them tonight, uh, many have turned away. There's only a few that are still following the faith. So he wants to make sure that Timothy is standing firm in the faith, guarding the truth that's been entrusted to him. Uh, so he writes to his closest spiritual son and encourages him. In fact, he actually charges him with, four, with at least four imperatives. There's actually about 30-some imperatives that happen here, which are commands. An imperative is a command to do something. Uh, but the four that stand out in the in, in the book of Second Timothy are these. In chapter one, now uh, if you if you took Timothy and dropped it, it breaks up nicely into four pieces, and uh, it just so happens that it coincides with the four chapters also. Um, but the charge or the imperative in the first chapter is to guard the gospel. And you find this in chapter one, verse 14. It says, guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And in chapter two, kind of combining verses three, eight, and nine, take your share of suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, remembering Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel, the gospel for which I am now suffering, And wearing fetters like a criminal. Wouldn't that be a great recruiting poster, right? Take your share of suffering. Yeah. Uh, In chapter three, the charge is to continue in the gospel. And that's found in chapter three, verses 13 and 14. Evil men and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceivers and deceived. But as for you, speaking to Timothy, he says continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And then in chapter four, the charge to proclaim the gospel. I charge you in the presence of God, and this is chap, uh, verses one and two of chapter four. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. Be urgent in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, and exhort. Be unfailing in patience and in teaching. Now put yourself in Timothy's sandals. Started to say shoes, but sandals for a moment. You're some 830 miles southeast of Paul's cell in Rome. You're across the Ionian Sea, past Greece, the other side of the Aegean Sea, in a busy port on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. You're in your early 40s. Oh, to be young again, many of us are thinking. Um, In your early 40s, most likely. Perhaps preparing a sermon for the still-troubled congregation at Ephesus that you're charged with overseeing. Sometime late in the summer of AD 65, you hear a knock on the door and you open it and there's a courier with a scroll, a parchment, with a a seal that you recognize from your good buddy, Paul. Maybe it's Tycheus bringing bringing this. He hands you a scroll uh, with the seal of Paul, your mentor, Paul the Apostle. There had to have been a little bit of a rush of excitement for Timothy as he received this. Surely he had heard of Paul's arrest. The letter must have brought a sense of relief. He's still alive, my friend is still alive and he's well enough that he can write to me or at least he's well enough that he can uh, have Luke transcribe a letter for him. Now with the same sense of excitement, let's read through that letter together. Starting in chapter 1, Paul, we're going to buzz through here because the idea, which I'm a little longer than I thought I would be already, is to read all of Second Timothy because this is how it was designed to be read and we don't often do this. So buckle in, I'm going to read a little fast, but I'm also going to try and read it with a little bit of emotion. <laughs> it takes 15 minutes, I timed it earlier. <laughs> so maybe we can do it less than that. It actually, it took, it took that Irish lady on my phone 12 and a half, I think, so... I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phegilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Oneser- Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. "'An athlete is not crowned "'unless he competes according to the rules. "'It is the hard-working farmer "'who ought to have the first share of the crops. "'Think over what I say, "'for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. "'Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, "'the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, "'for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, "'but the word of God is not bound.' Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is honorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with the foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone." able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through, through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, For Demas and love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tititius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the Copper Car- "'Coppersmith did me great harm. "'The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. "'Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. "'At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, "'but all deserted me. "'May it not be charged against them, "'but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, "'so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed "'and all the Gentiles might hear it. "'So I was rescued from the lion's mouth.' The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet, Pis, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Tromphimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you all as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. 11 minutes. I read faster than Kristen. So for how many of you is that the first time you've gone all the way through 2 Timothy in one sitting? Anybody? A few? Good, good. Me too. Uh, almost. First time I've read it all out loud. <clears throat> okay, so let's back up and we'll look at First Timothy, um, not First Timothy, Chapter One of Second Timothy. We'll work our way through in the time we have remaining um, through just the first chapter, so the first eighteen verses. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that was in Christ Jesus. Paul often had to defend his apostleship from detractors. Um, he was accused of not being an apostle, of, of claiming this ministry for, as his own. Um, but he defends himself even here again and says uh, that it's by the will of God, not by man not by anything else, but by God's will that he's been called an apostle and called to the Gentiles. Now he's referring to his conversion on the road to Damascus, right? Um, And he says that this was by the will of God. He didn't receive it from the other apostles, although they confirmed, they gave confirmation to who he was, and that it wasn't self-proclaimed as many people that he was running into uh, or others that were teaching false doctrine, they were self-proclaimed apostles. We have some self-proclaimed, proclaimed apostles in our day and age as well. Um, This actually is an office that doesn't exist anymore. And we know that because one of the qualifications was to have seen the risen Lord. He needed to be an eyewitness to his resurrection. And Paul, uh, he says, as one untimely born, but that he did actually see the resurrected Christ. Uh, Met him on the road to Emmaus, or on the road to Damascus. Um, And then presumably also when he spent a couple of years uh, Back home to uh, Tarsus, uh, learning, learning from who? Well, learning from the Lord, apparently. Um, and then when he came back to Jerusalem, the apostles confirmed that he was he was bringing the same gospel that they had received directly from the Lord. Uh, so again, apostleship not something, not an office that still exists. Now there are still sent people. We actually call them missionaries oftentimes or evangelists. There are still sent ones, ones that are sent, but they're not. They don't go with the power of apostleship. Um, So if you have questions about that, happy to talk to you afterwards. But uh, it's actually not very controversial in circles that any of you run in probably. Um, So he's defending his apostleship here. And um, there's also the certain irony knowing that Paul is facing death, and then he's speaking of Christ, the one who uh, promises life, even though Paul knows that he's facing certain death here. So you can tell that his trust was directly rooted in Christ. And he's talking about um, that promise of life in Christ Jesus, the one who's defeated death, who's rendered death uh, ineffective, made it inconsequential. Um, We still see death on a regular basis, so it kind of makes, there's this dilemma. What does he, what does he mean? What is, you know, the promise of life? Well, it's because until the second coming, we'll continue to see death in our world, right? Uh, but it holds no power over those who, have, who are trusting in Christ. Jesus nullified its power, rendered it meaningless. Uh, verse two, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Timothy must have heard Paul teaching the first, during the first missionary trip, his first journey uh, in Lystra. Because when, when, Paul, when Paul comes back on his second journey through Lystra, that's when he runs into Timothy, meets him, and Timothy joins him on his travels. And they traveled together for uh, some 20 years together, facing hardships, uh, trials of various kinds. So they knew each other very well, very intimate friendship. Um, A mentoring going on here. Timothy continued to learn from Paul during all of those trips, saw the heartaches that he faced, probably faced no small amount of them himself. Um, So a close uh, relationship. And Paul uses, this is his normal greeting is grace and peace oftentimes. He adds a third element here in greeting, uh, both in First Timothy and in Second Timothy, adds the word mercy. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's receiving favor from God that's, that's un, unmerited, not earned in any way. Uh, and mercy is, actually mercy is this idea of not receiving that which we do, do deserve, not receiving judgment, but actually receiving God's mercy. And then peace is reconciliation peace and reconciliation the rest- the restoration of harmony to lives that are spoiled by discord verse 3 i thank god whom i serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as i remember you constantly in my prayers night and day as i remember your tears i long to see you you can hear paul's emotion just pouring out here he remembers the last time they were together and as they're as they're departing from one another timothy's crying Um, He's got, you know, tears of friendship and tears of of, uh, just this this separation that he knows is gonna happen. And Paul longs to see him. It's a little interesting that you see all the way through this letter, you can hear the idea. Paul has been the mentor the whole time. He's been the rock in Timothy's life. And now there's a little bit of a role reversal in one sense. Paul's actually longing to see his friend come and encourage me. I'm, I'm lonely. Luke's the only one here, as we read in the, at the end of the letter. Luke's the only one who stayed with me. Everybody else has deserted me. Uh, I long to see you, Timothy, my son, my friend. Please come. Uh, verse five, and I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now Paul is sure that dwells in Timothy as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. A very personal paragraph here. Um, He's assuring Timothy that he thinks of him often. Again, remembering his tears, longing to see him, thanking God for him. Those are incredibly powerful things to hear from somebody that you love, that you care about, and especially from somebody that you look up to when you hear that they're praying for you, um, that, that they think of you often, and that they give. He's actually thanking God for Timothy, his brother, which also is an indication that Paul, even though he knows how much he's poured into Timothy's life, and he's just mentioned how much his mother and his grandmother poured into his life, he knows that it's God who's done the work in Timothy. Um, the parts where Paul talks about serving God as well as his, like his ancestors did and having a clear conscience. Don't get the idea here that Paul's claiming to have, um, have, that he's making any kind of a claim that he's served God perfectly. He knows that he's the chief amongst all sinners, right? Um, He knows that he committed murders, essentially, of innocent people. He was there when Stephen was being stoned for proclaiming the gospel. So he knows that he's guilty of egregious crime, um, but only that he kept a clear conscience and repented quickly. Think about his conversion on Damascus. I mean, here's a a man who's angry and headed to, to imprison other Christians, and he's changed in an instant. And as soon as he hears the truth and he knows clearly that, no, this is actually the same God that I've been trying to serve all of my life. This actually is him, and this is a continuation of that. Uh, Paul then is wholeheartedly committed to the gospel and to, the, to um, Christ as his Lord. Verse five, uh, again, this idea of him remembering the legacy of faith in Timothy's family. His mother and grandmother must have recited Old Testament verses to him when he was nursing, when he was a babe um, and as he grew up. So they implanted into him, his father was a Greek, uh, was a Gentile, if you didn't know that already. His mother was a Jewish person, but his father was a Greek and unbelieving, presumably. Um, so Paul reminds uh, Timothy of these things that have been implanted in him through his family. He also reminds Timothy of the gift that, was, that he was given and he admonishes him to not let the fire go out, to fan into flames the fire that was put in to, into him. What is a campfire? You guys, many of you probably camp or you've been around a fire. What does it require? You know? Yeah, and fresh fuel sometimes, right? I mean, you've got a couple of things going on. You've got, you've got, your, you've got a fire that's sitting there and the logs have burned up and they're, they've just kind of dwindled down to coals. And you got to stir it up a little bit once in a while, right? You got to stir. It, you got to stir up your faith once in a while a little bit too. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy to do. He's saying, not only stir it up, fan into flame. So give it some oxygen, give it some fuel, give it some air to breathe. Um, fan it back into the flame that was implanted in you. Uh, it's not necessarily an admonishment that Timothy's not been doing a good job, but it, it's an encouragement and it is a command to fan back into flame and to, to stay strong in what he's been called to, not only through Paul's laying on of hands, but just the gift that God has given him directly. Um, so Paul's reminding him of his gifting and encouraging him to exercise those gifts, fan them into flame, to feed them, reminding timid, uh, timid, timid Timothy that God is not the God of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Now, the, verse, the word spirit in verse seven, it's, it's probably not capitalized in your Bible, it's not capitalized in mine, but it probably should be. Uh, verse seven, it says, uh, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I don't know about you, but my spirit very seldom is powerful and loving and self-controlling, but the spirit that God has implanted into me, the Holy Spirit that he puts into me, it is loving and has self-control and it's powerful. It's got dynamus. it's dynamite is the word that's used there, dynamos. Um, same word we get dynamite from. So this, um, and if you look at verse 14, it's very clearly the Holy Spirit that's being spoken of there and it's capitalized. He's talking about the same spirit in verse seven. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit it is not a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control. Paul gives Timothy four steps to strengthen his resolve in the next few verses. In talking about fanning this flame, he gives him four ways to do that. The first step we see in verse eight. It's, uh, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. In Romans 1.16, one sixteen, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Don't be embarrassed by this fantastic news, Timothy. Shout it from the rooftops. Now, the resurrection was a stumbling block to the Jews because of the shame of the cross, right? It's also a stumbling block or it was foolishness to the Greeks because they thought the resurrection itself was foolish. Uh, anything physical was bad, so there's no way that this could be good. To be resurrected was—that's not a good thing. Why would anybody want to be resurrected? You're just—they—they they, their idea of uh, nirvana or heaven is the release of your spirit to to go back into this great consciousness, right? To rejoin the universe. They think that we're in—we're imprisoned basically in these in these physical bodies. Not so. The resurrection disproves that um, to no end. Uh, that, that ultimately what God designed and wanted was a renewed spirit in us, in a resurrected body, just like Jesus has, and to live the way that he lives. So Paul was not embarrassed by this at all, and he's encouraging Timothy again, uh, step one, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Um, step two, don't be ashamed of God's people either. Even though some of us are a little weird sometimes, right? But don't be ashamed of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, very specifically, Paul says, don't, don't be ashamed of me either. I'm in chains for the gospel, but don't be ashamed of me because of that. It's a good thing. Uh, even though Paul surely didn't like it a lot, but don't be ashamed, he's saying. And then step three, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So sharing in that suffering is the third step to encouraging his faith and living um, in a spirit that's not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And then, uh, well, I'm carrying on in verse nine there. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling leading to step four, which is anchoring yourself in the Lord's sovereign grace. And here's the grace. It's not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So it's in Christ Jesus, not because of what we do, but because of what he's done. So anchoring yourself in the Lord's sovereign grace is the fourth step, which continues on in verse 10, and which now has been manifested. We've seen it, it's come into being through the appearing of our savior, Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He shined a light on immortality, showed that it was true and real and can happen. It's good news to you and that we can be reconciled to the God of grace, mercy, and peace. Verse 11, to this or for this, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed. Paul has believed Jesus. He's believed God. And I'm convinced that he is able, speaking of Jesus, speaking of the Spirit, he's able to guard until that day, that day referring to the second coming, he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Either referring to the second coming or referring to his own death. But until that day, Paul is trusting that Jesus is gonna guard the gospel that's within him and that he's sharing and and, uh, encouraging Timothy to do the same. Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So following the apostles' teaching, right? And not just Paul's, but all of the apostles. Following their teaching. Following the pattern of sound words. Words that make sense. Reasonable words. Words that are logical. They make sense of the story. Um, And they're proven out by the evidence, right? All of these things. He's encouraging Timothy. And then verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Harmogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and he was not ashamed. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now, apparently he was either with Paul, near Paul or knew about Paul's arrest and he came to Rome to find him and earnestly searched until he found him in presumably in the Mamertine prison. Um, So he didn't give up until he found him and brought refreshment. Verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find a mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know the service he rendered at Ephesus. So apparently this was a well-known guy. He had done good things in Ephesus and Timothy would have known him as well. Uh, There's a clear contrast called out between those that have not deserted, not only Paul, but also the faith with those who have remained true. It reminds me of um, Galatians 5. When speaking of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not satisfy, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We've got time if you want to turn there actually. It's Galatians 5.16. From Second Timothy, it's going to be about six, eight books back to your left. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if you find one of those, back up. G, uh, General Electric Power Company, GEPC. Nice easy way to remember those four, the order of them anyway. So Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Pretty long list to not be exhaustive, but he says there's more, anything like these other things. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit who's living within you, if you've believed, you've received. There's no special anointing that needs to happen. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is living within you. The Holy Spirit is within you. And the the fruit of that Spirit is love, joy, joy. Peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The first chapter of Timothy ended with a contrast between these two different groups, between these two different fruits of spirits, you might say. Uh, even as Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he knew that death was coming. It was time to pass the torch. We don't know what happened after he wrote Second Timothy. We don't know how long it was before he died um, or anything else that happened to, to Timothy for that matter. Tradition says that he was beheaded as a lawful Roman citizen and that he didn't suffer the humiliating slow death of so many of his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's pleasant to think that Timothy made the journey, picked up John Mark somewhere along the way, stopped in Troas and got Paul's cloak and his parchments and got to see his friend one last time. But we don't know for sure. You know, it'd be nice. To, it is, it's pleasant to think that that's what happened, right? Maybe that's the movie version of Second Timothy, right? Regardless, what we do know is that the flame of divine truth is passed like a torch from the hand of Paul to Timothy, to the hand of his son, Timothy, to the hand of Titus, to Tychicus, and to Luke, on to John Mark, on to Rick, on to Kelly, on to you, each and every one of you, that same torch is passed. Some pastoral advice, I'm confident you have and are receiving that same truth that's been passed down through the generations. In the things that you learn at Trail Christian Fellowship, I'm quite confident that that's the case. Um, I'm confident that those of you who come from other, other traditions and other churches, that probably most, if not all, of the things that you bring from there also are based on the truth. If they come from the apostles' teaching and from God's word, then I am certainly confident of that. It's still each of our responsibilities to take hold of to examine the things that we're taught, to examine the things that we learn here, Uh, and maybe more importantly, to to look at, to examine traditions that we bring with us, whether it's from our families, maybe from other denominations, from other churches we've been part of, uh, even the traditions that we hold here, and to compare them to God's scripture, comparing them to God's word, and holding fast, most importantly, holding fast and guarding the gospel. The church, the church in general of our day, desperately, urgently needs to hear the message of the second letter from from Paul to Timothy. Uh, For if you look around, all of us see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, letting it slip out of their hands, not holding fast to the truth. They're in danger of letting it drop altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed a new generation who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel, who are determined to proclaim it and prepared to suffer for it, and who will pass it on pure, uncorrupted to the generation who in due course will pass it on to the next upcoming generation of Timothys. So hold it high, guard it well, and pass it on. Father, we're grateful for Well, we're grateful for Paul and we're grateful for Timothy. Most of all, Lord, we're grateful for your word that you've preserved through these men, that you've passed down to us through uh, these men and so many others. Uh, The the shoulders of the saints upon whose shoulders we stand, Lord, uh, we're thankful for each one of them. Most of all, thankful for the shoulders that they stood on, the shoulders of Jesus Christ, your son, who came, who they saw, many of them, who they touched, who they interacted with, uh, we thank you for that great and glorious gift, Father. And as that tradition has been passed on to us, as that um, torch of faith, that torch of truth, that torch of righteousness, Lord, we pray that you help us to glean everything out of that possible and that we would each have our own uh, mentor or Well, we just have our own mentors for one, yes, but also those that we are mentoring, those that we're passing that faith onto, Lord, whether it be uh, our kids um, or other younger people, Lord, or a combination of both. Uh, Lord, I just ask that you bring into each one of our lives people that would be receptive to that and people that would desire to know you better and um, put us in good relationships to pass on the truth that you've given to us, Lord. Uh, We love you. Again, we're thankful for your word, Lord, and I'm thankful for each brother and sister here and uh, ask for your blessing upon each and every one of us, Father. We love you. Thank you for all these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.